0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan
1: Clydman, Editor-in-Chief
0: of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. And you know you can't trust this president do
2: what's right for this country. You can trust He will do what's right for Donald Trump. He'll do it now. He's done it before. He'll do it for the next several months. He'll do it in the election if he's allowed to. This is why, if you find him guilty, you must find that he should be removed. Because right matters. Because right matters.
0: And the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. That was Congressman Adam Schiff delivering his closing argument Thursday night in the impeachment trial of President Trump. It came at the end of three days and nights of presentations by House managers that laid out their case that the president used the powers of his office to coerce a foreign government to launch investigations that had only one purpose, to sully a political rival and aid his 2020 re-election campaign. The presentations were, by all accounts, powerful and compelling at times, none more so when Schiff was center stage, skillfully weaving excerpts from emails and video clips from the testimony before the House Intelligence Committee in what seemed to many like a master class in oral argument. But starting Saturday, it's the president's defense team's turn. How will they counter the House manager's case and persuade key moderate Republicans that there's no need to call witnesses or subpoena documents that the White House has refused to turn over? We'll talk to one of the president's lawyers, Robert Ray, about what to expect. And we'll speak to Ken Gormley, a constitutional scholar and author of a book on Bill Clinton's impeachment, on this episode of Skullduggery.
3: Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clyde, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined, as we have many times before, by our colleague John Ward, who's been sitting in on the Senate trial. Welcome, John. Thank you, guys. So quite a week with uh, some very strong presentations, particularly by Schiff. Although also a lot of repetition, uh, a lot of seeing the same clips uh, over and over again. Uh, You're in the chamber. You're watching the senators. How are they reacting?
4: There is an ebb and flow to it. And I wrote Tuesday, you know, about how Schiff came in uh, with his afterburners on full uh, right from the get go. And I think that really caught the president's team by surprise. They came in there thinking Tuesday was going to be arguments just all about procedure and rules and how we're gonna, you know, make this thing work. Pat Cipollone, the president's lawyer, literally spoke for three minutes at the very beginning and then gave the floor to Schiff, who then spoke for I think over two hours and was just really on point. So there's an ebb and flow though, because that was the same day they went till two AM. And so at the end of that day, the senators are staggering out of the chamber. And so you get to Wednesday, which was two days ago now. shift starts again, does very well. But by the mid-afternoon, things are dragging, and it does sound repetitive. I actually thought yesterday, Thursday, was more interesting than Wednesday because they got into some of the particulars of the article, the first article of impeachment, which is abuse of power, and they started doing some pre to the expected attack by the Republicans, by Trump's team, on Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and all of the sort of whisper campaign about why Joe Biden pressured Ukraine to fire a prosecutor. Now, some
1: some commentators out there have suggested that that actually was a tactical error on the part of the the Democrats because it really opens the door to the Republicans— going on about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden when they get up to make their presentation. I, I'm a little skeptical of that because I think they were going to do that anyway.
0: But I mean, Mike, I think you brought that yeah, up. Yeah, look, when when Sylvia Garcia, one of the House managers, right. started talking about Hunter Biden and saying Hunter Biden did nothing wrong. I thought that was a real gaffe on her part, because that's not going to play with Republican senators. I mean, clearly, just on its face, the whole arrangement that Hunter Biden had to with Barisma while his father was the point person for Ukrainian policy was uh, uh, ethically questionable from the get go. And I think even he has admitted it was a mistake for him to take that job. So I thought that was a, a misstep. But, I was in the
4: chamber when, when that yeah.
0: happened. And Lindsey
4: Graham was had a Cheshire cat grin on his face. As soon as Hunter Biden's name came up, this grin, almost like the Grinch, kind of spread across his face. He went on, as uh, Garcia spoke, to sort of act like a kid in the back row of a high school chemistry class with with Senator Barrasso. They started like ribbing each other every time she would say, well, this person said Hunter Biden did nothing wrong or that Joe Biden did nothing wrong. Him and Barrasso would look at each other and raise their eyebrows and raise their hands as if to say, oh, it must be true. Well, do so, they have
1: anything? I mean, do they the have thing. any evidence that's other, other than what Hunter Biden's already acknowledged, which was that it was a an error in judgment for him to take that job? If you
4: look at what Graham said, he talked about Hunter Biden before things even got started yesterday. But he didn't say he had any information. He said, I don't know anything about Joe Biden and Ukraine. He said, I know a lot about Trump's family and their business dealings. I don't know a lot. So it's not as if he has allegations. He's just sort of raising questions. The fact is, every uh, all of the best sort of reporting out of Ukraine about the timeline of Joe Biden's pressure on Ukraine to fire Victor Shokin and the state of an investigation into the Burisma owner... By Ukraine prosecutors, uh, everything indicates that uh, everybody in Ukraine says that Biden's pressure to fire Shokin made it more likely that Burisma would be investigated rather than trying to get pressure off of it.
1: Right, right. because the Shokin, who I think then was the deputy prosecutor, didn't do anything even after the Brits froze right. the you know twenty-three million dollars in you know an assets of the owner of Barisma, whatever it was. Look, there is a—we um, you know, talk about the Senate, the 100 members of the Senate being the jury, but there's really a jury of about 10 Republican moderates altogether, moderates and conservatives, but people who have not actually shown uh, their hand yet, and both sides are going to be targeting and have been targeting those senators, you know, the Susan Collins, the uh, uh Mitt Romney, and, you know, you know the, the cast of characters. So— any sense that you've gotten from being in the chamber of where uh, those critical senators are at this point?
4: Well, I think there are two senators who are up for a re-election this year in sort of swing states that we thought coming into this might be up for grabs. Martha McSally and Tom Tillis from Arizona and North Carolina, they've both made very clear they are firmly on Team Trump. Corey Gardner from Colorado has been very attentive and very quiet, has given no clues as to where he is. My guess is he's going to stick with Trump, too.
0: I was just going to ask, you're watching these senators. I mean, what are you seeing as to how they are... Absorbing this, how much attention they're paying? Are they taking notes? Are they following the arguments, or are yeah? They, they're, they're
4: they're definitely following it. There's some characters like Grand Paul who are kind of bringing in a crossword puzzle and kind of flouting, you know, dismissing it. But Collins and Murkowski actually sit next to each other. They're the most interesting to watch to me because Collins is like this meticulous note taker, always jotting down notes. Murkowski is the most actually attentive she has sat there every day that i've seen her with her hands in her lap with a very very focused look on her face she seems to be taking it very seriously
0: so uh right now uh president's defense team starts Saturday, I guess an abbreviated session, and then they'll... And they might start earlier. They might start earlier.
4: Apparently, um, maybe.
0: Alright, and then uh, uh, Monday and Tuesday they will continue making their case. Speculation uh, is they might only take two days. But, might, yeah, right, right. So. Okay, and then, you know, the, there's the questioning and then the crucial vote. Right. Witnesses and documents. Right. When do we expect that vote? And right now, How do you see it playing out?
4: It'd be Thursday or Friday. If the president's team takes all three days, it'd be Friday. I don't have a good sense of it. I mean, you could argue it either way. I did see that. I think Chris Murphy, the Democratic senator from Connecticut, said he's less optimistic now than he was a a week ago, just because McConnell has a way of sort of, you know, getting to these people, (laughs) getting to these senators.
1: It raises an interesting point. Someone, um, we were having a conversation in the office about why McConnell chose to wait until you know halfway through the trial, before holding that vote on whether there ought to be Senate witnesses, because he could have done it at the, the beginning. Yeah. And the theory, the thinking was, well, you know, why would he wait? Let the let the Democrats put on their case, put more pressure on moderate Republicans to vote for witnesses. I think it's kind of the McConnell strategy of like kicking the can down the road. And you know, I mean, he probably understood that like people watching this for hours on end yeah. um, on television, it was going to get you know and. For a lot of people, boring, and it would lose some of the steam and some of the kind of energy, and that would be uh, that would help him rather
0: than hurt him. Well, look, if if the vote is going to be Thursday or Friday on witnesses, um, you know this can go one of two directions. If right. they vote no, this trial could end very quickly. There could be the motion to dismiss Friday or Saturday. Friday or Saturday, and the whole show is over before the Super Bowl. But and if, before the Iowa caucuses, and before the Iowa yeah. caucuses, um, and the State of the Union, and the State of the Union. But if, if, if
1: not, but if not, yeah. it could go for weeks and maybe months because well, that's, if there are
0: witnesses, that's part of then, McConnell's argument. Because right, yeah. yeah.
1: if there are witnesses, then you get the White House invoking executive privilege, right. then exactly. it goes to court, exactly. it gets litigated, and it, it goes. Well, and,
0: we've got a member of the president's legal team about to join us, who hopefully can shed some light on this. So um, let's get to it. Robert Ray was the last independent counsel to investigate Bill Clinton succeeding Ken Starr and he's now a member of the president's legal team along with Ken Starr and he's with us today on Skullduggery Bob welcome to Skullduggery nice to be with you All right. So a lot of anticipation after we've heard the uh, days and nights of uh, arguments from the House managers. It's going to be your turn. Starting on Saturday, what should we expect? Well,
2: that's what it looks like. I do think that on Saturday, don't know for sure, because obviously that matters in the control of the Senate. But I think they don't intend to spend an entire day at it. I suspect that it may be just a couple of hours. So probably just the first one or two members of the trial team for the president's defense will present on Saturday. And I think then the senators are likely to call it a day and for the weekend. And we'll be back at this on Monday.
1: Well, do you expect that you're going to take the full 24 hours that have been allotted to you?
2: Hard to say, but I think that's unlikely. I think what we're looking to try to accomplish, since there's already been a number of hours spent, and I think probably some fair criticism that it's been repetitive. I do think that we'll make a real effort with uh, the senators not to try their patience and to be as efficient and um, avoid being duplicative to the extent that that's possible. I mean, obviously, it's a coordinated effort. There are a number of people that will be presenting. But the the object is to persuade, and what we're trying to accomplish is to persuade in a number of different ways, why the uh, articles of impeachment do not warrant the president's removal.
1: I want to get into your specific arguments. But just before we do that, we're recording here on Friday morning after Adam Schiff, the lead House impeachment manager, uh, gave a uh, closing kind of a closing argument uh, last night that's gotten a lot of attention, um, a lot of praise, kind of a summation to the jury in a way. And um, I was just wonder, did you get a chance to watch it?
2: I saw some of it. I've been, as you might imagine, busy preparing over the course of but the just, last five days, all of this week, from Monday through Friday, trying right. to you know get—my my first object here is to make sure that I am prepared to do what I have to do and not worry so much about right. what other people are doing.
1: But I, I just wonder—I I know that uh, you know, a lot of people said that these proceedings have been boring in some ways. They've gone on for a long time. There's been a lot of repetition. But just in terms of— uh, the craftsmanship, uh, the, the legal skills as a lawyer. How do you think Schiff has done? Is Has he been a worthy adversary? Do you think he's been effective just in terms of his uh, lawyering, his public presentation?
2: Look, the president, I think, himself has always said that Adam Schiff is very smart. He has prosecutorial experience, which I think is helpful and relevant for anyone in connection with proceedings of this type. I mean, I will say, with regard to presentations, they are kind of a strange feature of this whole process, because in some sense, while it has been characterized as an opening argument, in many ways, it's an opening and a closing, um, and also the presentation of evidence all rolled into one, which is not usually the way things are done. If you're talking about, for example, what I'm familiar with, which would be criminal trial proceedings, both as a prosecutor, and then also, I've spent the last, I don't know, almost 15
0: years in my capacity as a as a white collar defense lawyer. All right, so two questions. First of all, what's your case here? I mean the, the House managers have presented some pretty compelling arguments that the president was pressuring the Ukrainians to launch these investigations against his political rival Joe Biden and 2016 election interference, and that this was primarily about benefiting his uh, 2020 re-election campaign. You can deny that's what what the evidence shows, or you can present some evidence that contradicts it. Do you have any new evidence to show the senators that we haven't already seen that is going to undermine the case that the House Democrats have made? Michael, that's why we have trials and yes. you get and you and get that's no, why we have you here and, 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 on the podcast and to you, ask you these questions. And, and you get no free previews. But
2: look, I, you can expect a full throttle defense on the law, on the facts and also on the constitutional issues that these articles of impeachment uh, raise. For the first time in our history, we have articles that do not allege crimes That's a significant and substantial issue. I think Mr. Professor Dershowitz will have probably the most to say uh, about that issue. But you can expect that a number of the other of us will as well, including myself. But there, but But
0: there is still the core conduct to address. I mean, that is the essence of the House case. The rough transcript, the president's own words, the testimony of his own National Security Council staffers who viewed what he was doing as a political errand, who viewed the pressure being put on the Ukrainians as improper. How do you rebut that?
2: Well, you say it's compelling, but ultimately, of course, it's for members of the Senate to decide. And if it were so compelling as things once were, for example, in a case that you're well familiar with, which would be Watergate, you would have expected... I think you meant Whitewater. No, yes. Watergate. Watergate as well, sure. A... I, I, didn't, I, yes.
0: yeah. I didn't cover it, but I followed it very closely. Well, uh, fair
2: enough. Uh, we're all, uh, yeah. Some of us here are old enough to remember. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the significant well. distinguishing feature of Watergate is that it was so compelling, in other words, clear and unmistakable evidence that crimes were committed, that the matter in the House of Representatives enjoyed bipartisan support. In the House Judiciary Committee, there was significant Republican support, as well as unanimity among Democrats that warranted, and in their view, the removal of the president from office. And that's why, ultimately, the signal that was sent resulted in the president's resignation from office. So you can say compelling, but it's not so compelling that it ever enjoyed here, meaning our current times, bipartisan support. And even in the case of Bill Clinton in connection with The Whitewater investigation, but specifically what became the Lewinsky piece of that investigation, there was bipartisan support that understood that crimes had been committed. The only question was whether or not those crimes were such high crimes constituting an abuse of the president's oath of office that was sufficient to warrant the president's removal.
1: But Bob, what is your side's single best piece of evidence that a crime is required for impeachment and and removal. Because I recall, by the way, the Clinton impeachment, that Lindsey Graham, who was uh, a House manager, i.e. prosecutor at the time, stood up and said a crime is not required. Now, there, there were crimes being alleged in that case, but he explicitly said that a crime was not Required. So, what is the best evidence that you have to show that, a, that that a crime is required?
2: How about the Constitution? It doesn't say that. Yes, it does. Where? What's the part? Which part about treason, bribery, and other or other high crime and misdemeanor the, is unclear?
1: Well, because all of the scholarship, uh, most oh. of the scholarship suggests. Okay. That, I, that I that's not what the founding fathers were talking well, about.
2: Well, that, that's a very convenient uh, view.
1: Well it was Lindsey Graham's view.
2: Well, it's a very con you you asked about constitutional scholars. That's a very convenient view among constitutional scholars now. I think if you go back and you look at those same constitu or many of those same constitutional scholars during the Clinton impeachment, I think you will find to the contrary that they were very clear about the fact that while the focus was on, look, what President Clinton did here does not constitute a, an abuse of power, everybody recognized the premise was and, and understood that what was the foundation of the impeachment, bribery and obstruction of justice. So the debate wasn't about whether or not you needed crimes committed in order to warrant the president's removal from office. The only question was, were these the right kind of crimes, high crimes, that warranted a view that, as a last resort, the president's removal was warranted because they were the type of crimes that constituted a violation of the president's oath of office. There was a disagreement about that and ultimately the resolution of that in the Senate and the judgment of the Senate which has been accepted by history is that while the conduct was bad and it was illegal it wasn't sufficient to warrant the president's removal from office. It wasn't
0: bribery and obstruction it was perjury and obstruction which were the charges against Clinton. Uh, He wasn't charged with bribing anybody. But look do Do, you... Is that what I said? I, I didn't mean to say that. I meant to say perjury and obstruction of justice. Yes. Okay. So look, here's, I think, the fundamental question. The House argument is that the president's intent here was corrupt because it was only about his... Political reelection—that's that's why he made the request. That's, yeah, Michael, that's their argument. Yeah, but Michael, that's I, I get that argument. Right. And
2: and, so and, you, and and you sort of focus in on half of it, which is corrupt intent. Yeah, is a relevant consideration in connection with an impeachment. But often, what we think about when we think about that, of course, is corrupt intent. For example, the basis of which would be for a bribery charge. Corrupt intent, sort of in a vacuum, as the House Democrats have presented it gets much more to sort of this fuzzy concept about, well, we're going to impeach the president because we think his motives were improper relative to trying to benefit himself in connection with the 2020 election. Right, that, that, and, that is and, their and, argument. And I, and I will have, that I can give you, I will have much to say about that issue. That That is a standardless basis for an impeachment. Why? And that's not sufficient.
1: Why is Because it standardless it's not a
2: high crime and misdemeanor. You want to talk to me about whether or not bribery was committed, then we can talk about that. And if the Democrats thought it was so persuasive that bribery was shown here, why didn't they charge it? And the reason they didn't charge it is because there's insufficient evidence to show that bribery was committed.
0: Okay. And but, I'll have
2: much to say about but that. But
0: do you accept that the president's motivation here was to benefit his reelection campaign there weren't it wasn't broader discussion about corruption in general in Ukraine I think you have no, to be careful in, about that because yeah, I think the, the, you
2: know look the the problem with that argument is again if we start impeaching presidents based upon motives and we start impeaching pre- presidents related to motives that anything that they do that potentially benefits them in connection with a political campaign I think you have a real problem about sort of like where where's the line in that one. And I think, you know, also look,
0: you, what- could, you could argue mixed motives and that's a legitimate argument. But what the House Democrats are arguing is there weren't mixed motives here. It was all about the president's. Personal political—that's um, an
2: argument that they're free to make. But Daniel, you know, the question well, they is: did make it. That, that's you know, it's a question about whether or not truly there it's clearly and unmistakably so sufficient to warrant the president's removal from office, and particularly in the face of the fact that the president, in effect, is being impeached for doing something indirectly that he's entirely permitted to do directly, which is to say if there's a foundation for it there's nothing wrong with the president of the united states through appropriate channels of commissioning an investigation of anybody including a political uh, candidate look you know investigations have consequence i get that and they have collateral consequence in the political process I investigated someone who was a candidate for a principal office in the year 2000. That was was Hillary Clinton. Don't you think that that investigation had some potential impact on her candidacy? Sure. The question is how you handle that and whether you do so in an appropriate way that doesn't adversely or unfairly impact an election. You know, those those are all legitimate questions. But, you know, to get back to the underlying premise, it's a little odd to be talking about an impeachment when the president is entitled to do that directly. And you're saying that because he did it indirectly, because he had, you know, Rudy Giuliani involved, that somehow or not that's impeachable so conduct. It,
1: so it, it sounds to me, and this is kind of going back to Mike's first question, it sounds to me like you're, at least everything you've said so far suggests that your argument is almost entirely, if not exclusively, a constitutional threshold Argument. I just, um, I just so, talked
2: a lot about facts. So it's not entirely It's not entirely. Well, that, but, you, but, but I but, but what, I, but you I know, would say but I would say this: you have to start with the constitutional argument because if that argument prevails, I think as Professor Dershowitz now has already said, I don't know,
1: any number of times recently, if his argument prevails, there's nothing else to talk about. But it's you, over. you're not only really talking about facts; you're talking about about motives. Uh, the question I have is: where do you dispute the basic facts that the Democrats have laid out in the last The couple phone call of days? itself? But w- what aspect
2: of the phone call? Did, is, did there, I, is, is, there, is there any possibility of construing that phone call as an exp- explicit quid pro quo that would be sufficient to show bribery and a crime that would otherwise warrant the no, president's the plan, removal from office? The, but, the answer is no. All right. But, you know, so, that's
0: your interpretation so that's a, so that, that it doesn't rise to the level. But We are, clearly, we are, we
2: are in fact, about interpretations here because
0: that, there's a trial. That's why we do this. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Look, there's going to be a very key vote next week. About witnesses and documents. And the polls show, look, we have a dispute about facts. We have a dispute about what happened here. And we have key witnesses and documents that could shed light and resolve that dispute. How do you argue that it's not worthwhile for the Senate to get the testimony of those key witnesses who have not testified so far and hear what they have to say, starting with John Bolton? Well, you have to go back into all of the premises of the question that you just
2: asked. In a standardless impeachment that charges articles that include abuse of power an obstruction of conduct. I suppose that any facts um, are are in dispute. If what your object is is, I'd like to know more about something that is standardless in order to decide whether or not that warrants the president's removal from office. Uh, let me let me put it to you this way and simply and plainly: the issue about whether or not there will be witnesses uh, and and documents is a matter to be decided. By the Senate, of course. I don't tell the Senate what to do; they will make that judgment. But, well, but I you're would argue but, that but I they would say, shouldn't but subpoena. I, but I, right. But witnesses. I would suggest to you that documents and witnesses are only necessary to the extent that you're unable to decide whether or not what from what has already been presented, whether or not the president's removal from office is warranted. If you can make that judgment without documents and witnesses, I imagine there will be senators who will arrive at that conclusion, and that will be the end of it. But but I will, you know, concede the point that there may be other senators who think to the contrary, and there's a that's a reasonable debate to have. But ultimately, the body will decide whether or not they need—this isn't just a factual— resolution exercise for the purposes of determining that I would like to have answers to thing and to things and resolve facts this is not an oversight hearing this is a matter where the question to be decided isn't you know, can I have more facts because I'd like to know more information to decide whether or not certain things happened. Ultimately, this question isn't so much about guilt or innocence as it's about whether or not what is charged here warrants the president's removal from office. And if you can make that judgment without... I submit to you without uh, witnesses and documents, then it would seem to me that that would be the end of the matter. But
0: your your threshold argument here is that there was no quid pro quo because the transcript, a rough transcript, doesn't show a quid pro quo. The testimony of the witnesses who have appeared before the House Intelligence Committee don't explicitly prove there was a quid pro quo. House Democrats argue that it's pretty uh, two plus two equals four. You take the circumstantial evidence that we have on the table; they and also that argue, it's pretty clear. All right. Yeah, they also, you, they also are, argue
2: that it's extortion and that there right. is, you know, the right, pressure was the pressure was overwhelming and obvious. Notwithstanding the fact that President Zelensky law. said there wasn't any pressure, and that was seconded but by there, other Ukrainian government officials. I mean, you there, can you can ignore some of those facts, but of course, the point of the trial is to
0: have. All of those facts on the table All of those facts and shouldn't the, all yes. of the facts include the testimony of people who directly spoke to the president about this issue, who can. But Michael, uh, who, who, not, who all of the facts is
2: not every single fact that you would like. Again, this is not an oversight hearing. If there are sufficient facts there, look, every trial is about certainly a, a threshold matter of like how many facts do you need before you can make a an informed decision about what it is you're being asked to decide. And what I'm suggesting to you is it's not so much about guilt or innocence, although obviously what the the president's team is seeking is a judgment of acquittal ultimately. But it is, I, I suggest to you, based upon our history principally the question of whether or not the conduct as charged warrants the president's removal from office. And if you can do that without having witnesses and documents, I'm not telling the Senate that that's what they should do. That's ultimately their decision to decide whether or not that's what they need. They'll know what they need.
0: Do you have any idea what John
2: Bolton would say if he's called to testify? That's not my 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 task here. Okay, no, I, my I, my do you, my do my, you have, my my task do you here. Have any idea? I'm not. I'm not. Well, look. I my task here is to deal with the existing record. Okay, there will not be a record with regard to what Joel, John Bolton might testify to until such time as the Senate, in its wisdom, decides that it needs to hear from John Bolton. And what happens
0: if the Senate does vote? that it wants to hear his testimony.
2: Then we are prepared for all contingencies, including a trial with witnesses as necessary. We don't think it is necessary, and we will make that argument at the appropriate time next week before the Senate, but ultimately it will be the Senate's job to decide whether or not they think they need that in order to resolve these impeachment articles. But
1: if the Senate votes for witnesses and John Bolton is subpoenaed right now, um, sitting here on our podcast, do you think it is more likely... That the Trump defense team will, uh, that the Trump White House will invoke executive privilege, or more likely that they will not, and he will come forward and testify. And are you getting prepared to litigate an executive privilege uh, claim?
2: The president himself has signaled that that's what's likely to occur. So I, I don't speak for the president with regard to that I'm his lawyer, but ultimately it, it's the president's call as to whether or not executive privilege is asserted. I mean, that's that's that's, that's, his, some, that's his judgment to make.
1: And I think. Uh, you have some experience litigating these claims with previous independent counsel. Sure. And, you know, look, the
2: president has also suggested, even though, you know, in some fashion, it's not always necessarily in his best interest to do so, you know, you do have to respect. And I know, you know, in today's world, it's always everybody's motives are always questioned. But, you know, there is a legitimate question with regard to executive privilege, where the need to assert it is not about just protecting this president and this president's White House and this president's executive branch, but protecting the integrity of the assertion of executive privileges for all presidents. Every president has had that in mind, and it's been something that has been of a con- of concern to presidents going all the way back to President Washington. But look, the
0: issue is how you deal with executive privilege claims, and uh, if John Bolton is called to testify, you could do it in a closed-door deposition, question by question, and if you want to invoke executive privilege to some questions, you can there are other questions, presumably, that would not invoke, that would not rise to the level of a need to invoke executive privilege. Is that a uh, compromise arrangement you could accept? You know, let's, OK, let's go to the testimony. We'll sit in. If we think that there are some questions that the, that Bolton can't um, answer, we'll invoke executive privilege
2: at that time. Michael, there are too many ifs in that question. This doesn't become an issue until such time as the Senate decides that there are going to be witnesses, which is something they have not yet decided you on. You realize
0: the optics of invoking executive privilege to shut down key testimony uh, is not great. I'm well side. familiar
2: with mm-hmm. optics going all the way back to the the Whitewater investigation, several independent counsel investigations in the 1990s, and I'm familiar with it from history and also from having viewed it myself in connection with the Uh, The Watergate proceedings. So it look, this is not news to me. I understand all about optics. But you know, the question is, really, you know, we've got an impeachment article here, which accuses the president of obstruction of Congress, largely as a result of his assertion of executive privilege, which he, he was entirely permitted to do, and was prepared and did litigate the issue, and because the House chose to sort of pull the plug on that prematurely, they did not only that, but they then turned around and chose to, uh, to impeach him for it. It's kind of an ironic position to take, since the principal evidence in this case that has resulted in his impeachment is the call transcript, which the president
1: declassified and released. Well, speaking of optics, do you uh, what what about the optics of uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell publicly saying that he uh, was coordinating impeachment planning with the White House? He has now sworn an oath to be an impartial juror. Was that appropriate? And, I, and this is—I mean, honestly, talking, yeah. I think
2: a lot of that was overblown. I, I mean, you know, is it, it? It shouldn't be of any mystery to anybody uh, with regard to the procedural mechanics, not substance, that you would be engaged in planning and coordinating with the White House with, in connection with an impeachment trial. I don't know why that's well. Uh, have you or uh, any an uh, enormous mem- surprise to anybody? Have
1: you or any uh, of the other members of the uh, Trump legal defense team been talking to? To McConnell or his staff about the defense?
2: I, I can tell you that I, I can only speak for myself. I, I have not.
0: All right. So if there are witnesses, uh, you got some you're going to call? <laughs> Look, all we've
2: ever said about witnesses is if the Senate decides and makes a determination that they need to hear from witnesses, that it should be fair. Okay. So you can expect that if there... W- uh, if witnesses were called, it's not going to be just a situation where the House managers to get to call the witnesses they want in fairness to the president, which is all we've ever been seeking through all of this, including right. from when we were back in the House of Representatives. Our position has simply been you can't hear from witnesses from just one side. You're well, going to based have to have the, witnesses from both sides. Well, I'd
1: Bob, based on the uh, case that the Democrats have presented, and they spent a lot of time yesterday talking about Joe Biden and, and uh, Hunter Biden, Right, is would Vice President Biden be a legitimate witness uh, to call?
2: I think it's premature to be able uh, to make that determination. Uh, but I will say that the argument by many of the House managers and and many others, that testimony with regard to the Bidens, meaning both the former Vice President and his son, as their characterization, completely irrelevant, seems to sort of beg the question. If your big contention here is that there was an improper motive by President Trump in pursuing uh, this conversation with President Zelensky relative to investigation of the Bidens, it seems to me your views about that are colored or affected by whether or not you think there was merit to such an investigation seems to me that's relevant evidence. And after all, who's the defendant on trial in this matter? The president. He's entitled to a defense. Uh, it's a rather odd concept to say, oh, no, 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 you can't present a defense with regard to the Bidens. That's irrelevant. Really? No. But why, then the, why pres- can't... the president gets to but present then... a defense as he see fits. But it sounds like it, you're it, arguing if...
1: that, that Biden, that Vice President Biden would be a legitimate witness, and that if witnesses, if the Senate votes uh, to allow witnesses, that you should call him.
2: Well, that's up to the Senate, right? I mean, ultimately... but, but no. be, well,
1: the, the question of whether they're going to be witnesses is up to the Senate, but who gets called is up to...
2: Well, even who gets called is is, is clearly their determination. I mean, we could make... We can make proposals as to who we'd like to call. Just because we propose something doesn't mean that the Senate has to accept it. I mean, that we you, you are familiar with that that issue in connection with the, um, the Clinton impeachment. It wasn't, you know... There, there was a, a decision and a determination that they would hear from three witnesses. Right. That was a a determination that was made by the body. So just, because, the hand, so just because we want yeah. them doesn't necessarily the mean other, that we get them. But on
1: the other hand, Bob, wouldn't you also concede that from your perspective as, as a defense lawyer that Vice President Biden might not be an ideal witness in terms of the optics? He's a pretty popular... Guy. He's, um, well, what you know, you're talking he's... about is,
2: are, are there consequences and political considerations to, to, to all a lot of s- these things? Of course. You know, and I'm, I, you know, my role here is as a trial lawyer defending the president of the United States in connection with an impeachment. You know, I don't get to make all of those determinations. There's a lot of other things that weigh into that. My job is to get the president safely through these proceedings to a judgment of acquittal, period. That's my job. You know, there, I'm not suggesting that there aren't important other considerations involved, um, but my focus is on doing uh, and, and performing as well as I can in, in the task at hand. That's mm-hmm. my task. Hunter Biden? Well, it's the same point, you know. Would he be at the top of your list? I think people have already spoken to that. That's not for me to say, and you can, you know, you can direct those kinds of questions to the. Uh, I'm just saying. The, look, to if, the, if you, to, to the head get, of the trial team, if who if would get, be uh, the White House <laughs> Counsel, Pat if you get Cipollone,
0: witnesses. You know who would they be? Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the whistleblower. Anybody? They, Do you have somebody else? Well, you've,
2: you've rattled off all the ones that you could, you know, potentially right. think of that you, you, you know, have been discussed. The whistleblower, um, the I guess the junior whistleblower. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the vice president uh, potentially Hunter Biden. Look, I you know, we, it depends. Also, we're not even through the uh, House managers presentation. What's why don't we all just be patient and wait until they're done? We have a defense case by way of opening, and we'll see where we are. And then, the, you know, the Senate's going to, going to take that up. What Roll, But the threshold what? question is, again, I, we, to, I, I hate to harken back or, you know, repeat myself, but I mean, before well, we... The, be, the House be, Democrats
0: but, did plenty of that, so you know, feel but, free. But, but, before, <laughs> but before we
2: ever get to that, there, yeah. there still has to be a determination as to whether or not witnesses and... Um, and, and further documents really truly would be helpful in terms of the Senate's ability in order to resolve the matter at hand. And that, that matter is whether or not this is going to warrant the president's removal from office, which requires, as you know, bipartisan support and a two thirds vote. If you're not ever going to get there, all the questions that you might have can be resolved later on, it seems to well, me, look, in whole, an oversight
0: capacity. No, this no, is no. not the purpose of, a, no. of an impeachment trial. Well, you, just go back to the point I was making before. There's a core factual dispute. Was there a quid pro quo or not? And well, there may not be it, and, a core it, factual dispute because you would have expected
2: in order to tee that up yeah. that a quid pro quo would have been alleged in an article of impeachment. Not only was it not alleged, not only was bribery not alleged, but there's no oh, mention look, as thrust Pat of the Cipulmoni, Democrats argument doesn't that- matter whether it's the thrust the question is whether it's charged you know the president has a right to defend himself against something that should not be characterized as some sort of roving charge in articles of impeachment into which you can pour anything that you want. You know, basic fairness, we know this in the criminal process, you don't have to defend against an indictment that's just sort of a nebulous thing subject to variance. You're, you're entitled as a, 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 to a defense in which you, you can meet what, in fact, the charges are. That's one of the problems with having a standardless impeachment is that the articles are vague and they don't charge a criminal offense and yes i know you you know when you want to talk about bribery and quid pro quo it would have been nice that the articles actually charged that and they didn't and there's consequence to that too
1: what what role is president trump playing in his defense other than tweets and public statements has he is he meeting with his uh, defense team have you met with him is he making suggestions uh, about the defense strategy
2: i i would love to be able to help you there um, can you- I'm a lawyer representing a client uh, and unfortunately uh, my communications with the president meetings with the president and anything else are subject to right, leave aside
0: the president can you just give us some uh, shed some light on how the uh, president's legal team is is working I mean are you guys meeting every day conference calls how are you dividing things up? I'm sorry Michael I'm not here to give you a window <laughs>
2: into how the the president's defense is being uh, organized and orchestrated and the and the subject of the conversations as interesting as that would be and maybe someday when this is all over to a limited degree I may be able to do that but I can't do that now. Well let me just ask this part. Go ahead. <laughs> is, is the, the, go yeah, ahead. Try way, Take, make, take a second stab at it. I'm thinking the answer is going to be no, but go in ahead. The, answer, the, ask your
1: question. Well, I hope the answer is no. <laughs> that would make some news here, because my question is, in the way that the president uh, referred to the um, phone call with Zelensky as a perfect phone call, would you say that the president is the perfect client? So you changed
2: the question. <laughs> I was, I should, <laughs> I, what I should have
1: said was, I'm not going to
2: answer the question. Not that the answer was no. Uh, look, I have, I have said whatever you—and I've said so publicly—whatever your views are about whether or not the, the call was perfect or not, um, I have commented previously that, look, it would have been better since it led to this impeachment, and I've always been a firm believer in this, you know, running things through the ordinary processes of government— Um, Are done for a reason. They insulate you from just this sort of criticism in the political process. I'm a great believer in the Department of Justice and its uh, processes. And you know, look, if it had been left to me, it would have, I I think, been better to have uh, done it that way. And largely, that's kind of where we. What way? Well, that's largely that's largely where we are now. I mean, you know, John Durham has an investigation. It's been specially commissioned by the Department of Justice through the Attorney General, and the president is entirely permitted to uh, conduct foreign policy and foreign relations through, you know, whatever means he determines are appropriate. Uh, My only point has been that, um, you know, look, it... it, um when you do that and you and you don't run them through the usual channels, it's subject to just the sorts of criticisms that we have seen here that it's motivated not on the merits, but for, you know, partisan political advantage. That's why you avoid doing that. Yeah.
0: I mean, the bizarre thing is if the president really thought there was something wrong with what the Bidens had done or what the Ukrainians had done, he could have asked his own government, his own Justice Department to conduct those investigations, sure, asking a far government, a foreign government, which, by the way, you know, has had this history of corruption on its own to do the investigation for him, seems like a really weird way to get at the facts that would have credibility with the American public. And
2: there are, look, and there are ways to go about doing that. We have, you know, treaties, including a treaty with Ukraine. It's a mutual legal legal assistance treaty. But look, you know, ultimately we, we, we get there and I think things are now uh, in the hands of the Justice Department, where they where they should be. Well, the Justice Department isn't investigating the Bidens, and, and well, they
0: investigating Ukrainian interference, a supposed Ukrainian interference. Well, either there
2: there are, there are matters we don't, you know, I don't know that it's we we have an entire picture about what it is. John Durham is investigating but but, but uh, I think nothing th- about John Durham's but, but I, brief but encompasses I, but, but, but the But I but I think things are where they should appropriately be and that's a good and healthy thing but you know to get back to my original point I mean are you seriously about trying to impeach a president again for doing something indirectly that which he was permitted
0: entirely to do directly that's my only point you keep saying that this is something the president could have done directly by that, do you mean he could have ordered his own government to do these investigations? Or that's is that what you're saying? Yeah, he can ask the Justice Department to look into it. But he didn't.
2: I understand that, but you, you, you then you just missed my point. You're, you're then saying that it that it's an impeachable offense for him to do something that he did that he could have done directly. But you, well, but you,
1: you also said that you were you, well, you respect uh, Justice Department processes, and it sounds like you're saying that. But ideally, that would have been a better. And that's,
2: and by the way, that's just one person's view. Having spent yeah. a, a you know a career in law enforcement and sure. have been been a part of this, you know, I'm not the president of the United States. The president decides how he wants to conduct foreign policy and also who he uh, wants to use as it, as as advisors. You would not it have wouldn't appointed be, Rudy Giuliani. It, well, it wouldn't be the first time though that a president has conducted foreign policy through somebody who is outside of the foreign policy establishment or outside of the of the Justice Department. I'm not suggesting, as you might imagine, that there aren't consequences to doing that. I'm just suggesting that it's another thing altogether to claim that that's impeachable conduct. Okay,
0: so I think you indicated you are... Going to go Monday night? I I want to be careful about
2: that because I don't, you know, we will not. Like all trials, you can say what you think the schedule is. I've lived long enough and tried more than, I don't know, 35 or more cases. You know, when I think I know of the schedule, somehow it always has a way of changing. But, yes, I I expect that there will be a limited presentation on Saturday to begin um, the president's defense, and then I think the bulk of the defense is likely to go forward on Monday where I expect that I will, I, I will speak and at is, some time.
0: what is your particular role in presenting that defense? Uh, we know Dershowitz is going to do the constitutional argument. What's Ken Starr going to do? What What are you going to do? What's second Well, I'm gonna not going to,
2: I'm not giving any free uh, you know, peeks at what we'll do, but look at, you know, it's obvious that, that there, there has been some care taken to uh, the selection of the president's team based upon, you know, different experiences that, that people have had. And I'm sure that you can expect that, um, you know, uh, at least part of what I'll have to say will reflect on those past experiences and how they are relevant to the president's defense.
1: Last question. I just want to go back for a second to the previous conversation that we were just having. Right before Bill Clinton's impeachment, or I guess trial, I I don't think you were on the start. I came afterwards, actually. Yeah, Yeah. But before, he did go on national television and he uh, acknowledged that he was wrong. He showed some contrition. You can say he was forced to do that, uh, but, but he did. Donald Trump has conceded nothing. It was a perfect call He's a victim. This is a witch hunt. It's totally illegitimate. I guess my question just tactically from your point of view as a lawyer, wouldn't it be better for you? Wouldn't it make it easier to present your, your case if the president acknowledged that it wasn't a perfect call, that um, if he could do it again, he might do some of these things differently? Wouldn't that be helpful to your case? Wouldn't you like him to do that?
2: I'm not the president. I'm uh, his lawyer defending him at an impeachment trial. You know, stay tuned. The, uh, you mean there the, might this, be an apology? No, no, no. <laughs> the, 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 look, the president has ample reason to be concerned, not just for himself and this presidency, but for all presidencies with regard to the articles of impeachment that have been advanced by the House of
1: Representatives. But he may have staved off impeachment had he done that. That would have helped future
2: I, presidents. I think that is incredibly politically naive to think so. Well, well on, we, that note. <laughs> on that
0: note, um, we will be staying tuned uh, as you get your uh, moment in the sun next week. Uh, and um, we will see how this turns out. Thanks. I
2: very much look forward to, uh, to it. I am very pleased and proud to represent the president. It's an exciting opportunity for me personally, but an important one for the country, too. Thanks for joining right. us. Thanks, Thanks for having me.
0: We now have with us Ken Gormley, the president of Duquesne University, a constitutional scholar, the author of The Death of American Virtue, Clinton vs. Starr, about the impeachment of Bill Clinton, and he is also writing and studying the uh, Trump impeachment. Uh, Ken, welcome to Skullduggery.
3: It's a pleasure to be with both of you.
0: So a lot of comparisons are being made uh, this week comparing the Trump impeachment to the Clinton impeachment, the Nixon uh, saga and the Andrew Johnson impeachment. You were here in town for the opening day of the uh, Trump impeachment trial. What leaps out at you as a constitutional scholar about this and how it compares to our past experiences
3: Well, uh, you know, I did have the chance to attend the opening day of the Clinton impeachment trial. I had written a book on Watergate on Archibald Cox, the Watergate special prosecutor, so I, you know, naturally kind of segued into that project. The thing that jumps out at me is uh, at the during the Clinton saga and Michael, you, you know covered that time thoroughly and were one of the leading voices on that as well. There was in the Senate, it was one of the things I was proud of and relieved of, is that the Senate, unlike the House proceedings, managed to quickly figure out how to work together. And I interviewed Senator Trent Lott, the Republican leader, and also Tom Daschle, the Democratic leader, immediately after the House impeached Clinton, they were on the phone talking about how to work together so the Senate as an institution was protected and, and was not dragged into a melodrama. And as you know, Senator Teddy Kennedy, a liberal Democrat, and Senator Phil Graham, a conservative from Texas, got together at a meeting of both sides and agreed to agree. They didn't even know the details of it, but they agreed that they were going to work together and not have this turn into a circus. This, sadly, was the polar opposite. You know, To see Senator Mitch McConnell standing there, and I have great respect for him. My dad was from Kentucky. But to stand there and outline procedures that the Democrats had had no say in that excluded them, really, and that was the opposite of something that had been worked out together, and to refer to it as the Clinton rules. The Clinton rules were bipartisan, we will work together and agree on things. This was the opposite, and that that was kind of the takeaway. And, and the tone of the day, as you heard some of the attacks, there was more vitriol in the room, more a sense of posturing for television cameras. Then reflected the seriousness of the occasion and and frankly, I was pleased when Chief Justice Roberts later in the evening after I had left, really rebuked both sides for that. This is a serious moment, and it wasn't being treated completely like that
1: and so do you what do you attribute uh, the differences to? Is it just the kind of increasing polarization in our political culture, or does it have to do with uh, personalities involved? And I think there is a—and I think I'd like we should get into this, because if you then compare Watergate—now, of course, there wasn't a, an impeachment vote and there wasn't a trial—but if you compare that period to the Lewinsky-Clinton uh, impeachment and then to the Trump impeachment, there is a—it seems like uh, there is a kind of a deterioration sort of all the way through So I'm just curious how you see the kind of evolution in kind of uh, historical terms. Or devolution. Or devolution, right.
3: Yeah. uh, Well, you know, I spent a lot of time on the Archibald Cox book with Archibald Cox, who had been my law professor at Harvard, and with Elliot Richardson, two great public figures in American history. And there was, and I interviewed Robert Bork, uh, who actually came, grew up in Pittsburgh, and you know I th- I think even though he was viewed as a villain by some, he was in a different position than than some of the other folks in the when when it came to the Saturday Night Massacre, but at that time in Watergate, you still had people who viewed public service as a sort of sacred profession. And uh, if you were forced to do something you didn't agree with, you resigned, like Richardson did and, and Cox had done earlier in his career in the Truman administration. It's hard to find those people you know, as we start moving forward. Now, uh, when you got to the Clinton impeachment, as I said, fortunately in the Senate, you still had that sense of, how do we protect this institution of government and the good of the whole country? What started sliding there was the, you know, kind of making it personal, which began in the Clinton saga, and I witnessed it firsthand, as you did. People started treating others as evil people if they took a different position. Even among the public, you'd go into the grocery store, and people would be shouting and pointing fingers. But a big part of it, sadly, is, uh, you know, re- relates to the evolution of the media, I think, I remember, as you do, Michael, the big story, the Lewinsky story, was largely broke, I believe, broken by the Drudge Report, Matt Drudge. And people said, who is this? What is the internet? Who is Matt Drudge? After our
0: editors at Newsweek uh, (laughs) decided not to run it. Yeah, exactly. I do remember that well. You could have been
3: retired by now (laughs) and they make a movie (laughs) after you. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've evolved in a way that I hadn't expected where you have these siloed media sources. And I also think it's just... You know, the way we've evolved with television, where it's okay to shout at people and be disrespectful and just, you know, shout over people. As a college president, as you know, I'm now president of Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. I have a program each year on civil discourse, and this year will be the topic of politics, contentious elections, and civil discourse. I want our students to learn that it's not appropriate and the way you learn to be leaders is to refrain from doing that and treat others with respect even when you disagree with them. But I do think sadly the you know the way media has evolved and it's not done evolving has contributed to that. What I saw on display even in the Senate the other day looked like people appearing in front of their their favorite TV show with people who all agree with them you know kind of making their points and and trying to lash out at the other side it's a far cry from what used to be the respectful way that things were handled in these serious situations and you need to look no further than walk across the street where chief justice roberts presides in the morning to see what a supreme court oral argument looks like and if anyone behaved like this they would be held in contempt and and thrown out if they treated anyone with disrespect like that.
1: It also seems to me that another dimension of this is the extent to which truth and objective facts have been kind of devalued in the culture, that we are in an era of alternative facts. And um, one thing that's striking to me is how hard it seems to be for the Democrats in prosecuting their impeachment case against Trump, you know, for the truth to kind of break through. And in the example, I was listening to one of the impeachment managers uh, talk about, you know, this idea that uh, you know it was the Russians who interfered in the 2016 election, not the Ukrainians. There isn't a a server that's gone missing in Ukraine as the president and his supporters have alleged the so- so-called CrowdStrike theory. And how hard is it today to actually make a case uh, for impeachment when no one can agree on, on the facts?
3: Well, I agree with that completely. It's, it's very difficult, and it's one of the odd things in many, way about, in many ways about this proceeding because there is no person who's, uh, you know, again, holding someone in contempt if they lie in front of the, the presiding judge or whatever – He's really just an umpire here, but it does make it very difficult because ultimately, all the you know White House team has to do is sow enough doubt in the minds of the senators who are on the fence to err on the side of acquitting. Uh, they've done their job, and and I understand it. I mean, their goal is to defend the their client, the president but when you don't can't agree on the facts and are prepared to use whatever facts suit you that does create real issues and and ultimately it's hard also for the american public to be able to make valid judgments later on about whether they want to return people to office,
0: you know, the other thing that leaps out at me is the hypocrisy on both sides, in which uh, you know people are making arguments that are almost the exact opposite of what they made 20 years ago during the Clinton impeachment. Uh, You know, we've all seen the clips of Lindsey Graham talking about the need for witnesses uh, at the Clinton trial, a position exactly the opposite of what he has today. And by the same token, the arguments that Jerry Nadler and other Democrats made about uh, 20 years ago about the dangers of a partisan impeachment in which there's no national consensus behind it and how that is something that uh, the country needed to avoid. I'm just wondering, when you listen to the arguments today and see how uh, they are the precise opposite of the arguments that were being made by the same people 20 years ago, what goes through your mind?
3: Well, it kind of shakes my faith in the whole system, I have to say. It's particularly hard for me Listening to people who I talked to and trusted and believed that they were acting you know with totally out of their you know sense of conscience to see sudden reversals that don't seem to add up and you know let me make clear in many cases, there are distinctions that allow a person in good conscience to think that the situation is different. One example, for instance, is on the issue of witnesses, I have to say I've come to believe that the Democrats are in a much stronger position on that issue. The problem is you can't have the president, the executive branch, saying you can't have these witnesses, you can't have evidence, as was done in the House, and then get to the Senate and say, well, last time you didn't need any more witnesses. Well, that was true last time. However... The the White House cooperated and provided the things in advance. President Clinton was on a TV screen testifying in front of the grand jury. Well, he, so was, kind of,
0: he was kind of forced to, right? I recognize he yeah. was forced to. He had no choice. He,
3: well, he was forced to, but the my only point is at that trial, they had the witnesses and evidence that they wanted to be able to move forward. It's a lot different if you preclude the Democrats here from having it to then say, well, you you should have called the witnesses earlier. You you didn't have that ability. So some of the differences in their positions are driven by the fact that there is also far less cooperation in this set of proceedings than there was
0: 21 years ago. Let me uh, you're a constitutional scholar and we have this debate going on in the midst of this trial as to what constitutes an impeachable offense. And the right. Democrats you know go back to the founding fathers and quote Alexander Hamilton and James Madison making essentially an originalist argument which I find kind of ironic in many ways because originalism was the was the hallmark of Antonin Scalia and other uh, conservatives on the Supreme Court and was uh, roundly criticized by liberals who said, no, we have a living constitution and we can't be bound right. by what 18th century statesmen wrote in a 21st century America. And it seems to me that the experience we've had with impeachment, although the impeachments of Johnson and Nixon used the language of abuse of power, but they also did specifically allege violations of the law. And certainly that was the basis for the clinton impeachment so give us your thinking on this as to it seems to me that this is the first presidential impeachment that doesn't specifically allege as an article of impeachment a violation of the law and that that is a break from precedent um give us your analysis of that of that issue uh,
3: yeah yeah i'm not sure i agree with that that's one of the arguments of my former professor Alan Dershowitz, who I respect a lot, but you know, I spent a lot of time studying this back in 1998-99. I wrote an article for the Stanford Law Review. I, I read all of the historical records of the at, at the time of the drafting of the Constitution and the early founders. I do believe that impeachment was not at all meant to be limited to crimes, and that the language that people are quoting from Alexander Hamilton is indeed what they had in mind, an abuse or violation of some public trust. And in fact, the language goes back to the 1300s in England, where there were high misdemeanors, high crimes and misdemeanors. There is such a thing as a high misdemeanor, and that had to be deal with you know, conduct that threatens the well-being of the state. It doesn't necessarily have to be a crime. And, you know, people haven't talked about this But uh, at the time the Constitution was framed, there wasn't a crimes code. I mean, you know, so this clearly was not limited to crimes. No, I I get that,
0: that 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 was the original, the originalist intention of the founding fathers. I'm just making the point that if you look at the actual specific presidential impeachments we have had, they all revolved around violations of, of the law. And there's a a reason to do that, which is that it is much easier to prove a violation of the law than, you know, the more more amorphous standard of abuse of power, because your abuse of power could be my. Although, well, uh, just
1: although the amorphous standard is still there in the sense that you know it can be an a av- 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 you can establish a violation of the law that is also that an it, abuse of is, power yeah, or, right. that or, was Nixon or it right. could be a violation of the law that doesn't rise to the level of impeachment and that and was that Clinton, Clinton. Yes. And that was Clinton yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, no I,
3: I, I you know if you look at the andrew johnson impeachment it was based as you know on the tenure violation of the tenure of office act and right. that provision Yes, technically was couched as a crime, but it was really an abuse of power crime, is what it was. That they weren't allowed to, the president couldn't do this without permission of Congress. And, you know, contempt of Congress, from my research, is a crime. I mean, there was a criminal law passed in 1857, and they used that, for instance, in the Teapot Dome scandal when uh, the Attorney General Daugherty's brother wouldn't. Uh, respond to a subpoena and they sent a, uh, a deputy sergeant-at-arms to Ohio and arrested him, and it went up through the Supreme Court, and they said that was permissible. But you
0: don't have a litigant in a judicial case determine what the uh, uh, make the ruling on what is the crime here. That's why the argument and, has been made, and I to agree, that had the Democrats gone to court and gotten even one judge on one of these witnesses they say is essential to the case, they would be much stronger positioned today, I, I, I agree. especially I agree. on that Second article obstruction of Congress. Yes,
3: I, I I do agree with that. I think that was a tactical error. Although it doesn't help when a president makes a blanket declaration that no one is is going to cooperate, and that is unprecedented as well. I was just teaching my students with my book on the presidents and the Constitution yesterday, talking about George Washington was asked to turn over documents relating to the yeah you know, military in his administration that were embarrassing, but he did it. From the very first presidency, recognizing that you have to respect the power of that uh, independent branch. And so when you have a chief executive say you can't have any witnesses, you can't have any documents. That throws a monkey wrench into it, and I can tell you that is not what the framers had in mind. I, I
0: look, think the key moment in this, when we look back on it, may be when the, uh, the House Democrats withdrew their subpoena for Charles Kupperman. They subpoenaed yeah. him. They were before Judge Richard Leone uh, in the in D.C., and Leone had even laid out a whole schedule for arguments uh, on a on a fast track in December. But I think they were worried that. Leone, a bush appointee was going to rule against them. and so they withdrew the subpoena. And uh, as a result, and, and by the way, Bolton, who's the witness they're all seeking so avidly here for good reason, uh, had said his, they had the same lawyer, Copperman and Bolton, and they say, we'll abide by what the judicial ruling is on this. But had Leon ruled against them, which I think is what Schiff was worried about, that would have totally undercut the uh, article of, uh, for uh, obstruction of Congress, because the only yeah. judicial ruling on, the, uh, you know, on its face relating to th- this impeachment proceeding... Would have been against them,
3: yeah, fair enough, and I agree that was a tactical error. However, I think the other part of the calculation was there's no way we're going to this is going to work its way through in time for the impeachment trial, because, of course, even if the federal judge ruled in that way, the other side would have, the the administration would agree.
0: Why did they have to to suspend the impeachment uh, proceeding? They could have still continued to impeach him and voted articles of impeachment, just like the House Judiciary did under Nixon. They didn't wait for the Supreme Court ruling on Nixon v. USA. I agree with that.
3: Yes, I, I agree with that. But it wouldn't have resolved the issue in this trial. We'd still have the same issue.
0: Ken, you
1: had some interesting observations on how these individual presidents have dealt with impeachment, or in Nixon's case, his looming impeachment, and particularly um, the issue of contrition or, or lack thereof. And in fact, you wrote a fascinating piece for us uh, for, for Yahoo News um, about Trump and uh, where he might stand now if he had sh- shown some contrition that in essence uh, you argue that his uh, the impeachment might have essentially collapsed so talk a little bit about that and what some presidents have done and others have not done
3: well in the in the nixon cases you know president nixon viewed himself as a a fighter who was constantly under attack and so he did not uh agree to any wrongdoing and i've done a lot of work on the Uh, Ford pardon of Nixon, and I learned uh, 25 years ago in an event here, or some years ago, that President Nixon at first tried to not even accept the pardon from President Ford because he learned that there was a case that said acceptance of a pardon is an admission of guilt, and he didn't want to do it. That strategy did not work well. He just refused to ever take responsibility to the bitter end. Bill Clinton, on the other hand, early on. Now, he he didn't do it initially, as you remember, Michael. But once the jig was up and Monica was cooperating and the the blue dress was in the possession of the Independent Counsel's Office, President Clinton did begin the slow process of admitting fault. And and his team all along uh, started that process, Uh, I mean, the Democrats around him. So there was an open acknowledgement this was Bad judgment. It was a bad thing. No excuse for it. However, it did not rise to an impeachable offense, and I think that worked very well in Clinton's favor. I told the story of a six-foot nun who was the principal at the school where my kids were, and she pulled me aside and said, "You know, the guy admitted he he you know made a mistake. They should leave him alone and and just let him." run the country. And so when I interviewed President Clinton, I told him I knew when you got the six foot nun you weren't gonna get removed. But you know, the the American public is very forgiving and, you know, if asked to give forgiveness that they give it generously. I think it's been a mistake on the part of President Trump and his team. I know it tends to be his way of doing business and has probably been that way for many, many years. But I do think a little contrition would go a long way. And if he were prepared to say, you know, on reflection, this wasn't the greatest idea. I don't plan on doing it again. I I, I didn't do it with any motive to do anything wrong. I thought there was some bad stuff going on there. But I I made a mistake. And Reagan did that, if you remember, in Iran-Contra, ultimately. The public, I think, would be on his side. And that would be The best possible strategy. Right now, it's a very difficult thing, I think, for the White House team to have to be defending conduct that it's pretty clear people don't think is a great idea what he did. And the legal arguments are a bit stretched. But that's what you have to do if if uh, you aren't prepared to acknowledge any missteps at all. Well, I uh, I
1: have to say I agree with you that that it would be a smart strategy. It would be the right thing for uh, Trump to do. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it's in his character. But the other thing I would say is, you know, he is a president who has a stranglehold on on his party, and it's a lot easier for him. It seems to me to resist apologizing or, or contrition when nobody around him, nobody really in his party, nobody in the Senate, is out there saying, Mr. President, you made a big mistake. your call was not perfect
0: right. and 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 you can watch Fox News every night and right. be told you're one hundred percent right and the other side is 100 percent wrong. So why why bother apologizing for anything?
3: Yeah, well, I, I agree, and that that is the problem. The question is long-term, and we'll have to wait for another year to have that conversation, with that, whether that proved to be a winning strategy long-term.
0: You also wrote an interesting piece in Politico uh, a couple of weeks ago in which you started out uh, with a somewhat historical perspective as the impeachment, I'm, I'm reading it now, as the impeachment machine grinds toward a Senate trial. History tells us that it will be time consuming, bruising, wrenching and divisive, causing the country to become dangerously distracted and leaving untold wreckage in its wake. And then you cite the trials of Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. And then you actually made an interesting proposal that both sides should suspend the trial and pass legislation that would ban presidents from seeking foreign interference in an election.
3: I still think that would be the best possible outcome. You know, I, I begin with the proposition that people of good faith can take different views on whether the president should be removed for misconduct, even if they think it was unwise and I think we have to be respectful of people and recognize these are the people we go to church with and, and live in communities with, and they're they're good people. They're not bad people, and we shouldn't just be hurling invectives at, at uh, everyone in big categories. And I do think that ultimately you have to stop and think, what is the best thing for the country? Well, the best thing for the country is to figure out how to resolve this so going forward we don't have – this issue again. I don't think people believe it's a good idea for presidents to be getting foreign governments to involve themselves in manipulating U.S. elections. Uh, You can maybe debate whether President Trump did that. Fine. Let's not keep debating it. Let's fix it for the future. I do think if there was a way to accomplish that, That would be a perfect outcome where both sides could declare victory and get on with work. I do worry that the more time we spend on this, I think of Chief Justice Roberts sitting there and he's presiding over the one branch of government in the morning. They had oral arguments this week and having to do this in the, you know, into the late at night and how much we're losing our focus on what we should be doing as a country and as you know, the, the last time around, I talked to a number of the Ken Starr's deputies who were stunned after 9-11 and realized that while they were working on the Whitewater case, which culminated in all this and worried about the blue dress, people inside and outside our country were plotting our attack. So. Yeah, this is serious business, and I do think that ultimately if we could switch focus from trying to just win for our side and figure out a path forward that was beneficial for the country but didn't just blow up the whole thing, that would be much better. But it involves respecting the other side. And that's where, unfortunately, we've had difficulty.
1: Well, those are wise words. But Ken, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, the Starr team, and Ken Starr was a main character of your book about the uh, Clinton impeachment. You spent many hours uh, interviewing him. What do you make of him uh, coming back to another impeachment, but in this case, as uh, the president's uh, defense lawyer?
3: Well, I have great respect for Ken Starr. I You know, actually became a friend after working with him, and as I did with many people on both sides of the whole Clinton saga, I think it's a mistake. Uh, He spent four years of his life, or however long it was, adamantly pursuing President Clinton and, you know, invoking moral grounds for doing so and raising the exact, you know, going to your point earlier of switching positions switching positions dramatically it seems in this case you know i would think that there are better ways to use his time than to do something i don't know that it really will benefit the president in the end even though i think he's a fabulous lawyer and i i think it's a smart move in some ways by the trump team because he can speak to a lot of those senators and to chief justice roberts and he's one of the greatest oral advocates in the country, having been Solicitor General. But he brings with him the baggage of that whole Clinton saga. And, you know, there there certainly is uh, a, a big incongruity about it. Uh, I noticed that Paul Rosenzweig, one of his top deputies, voiced that concern. And I, I'm with him. I, I really think that in the end for Ken Starr, I'm not sure it's a great thing to, you know, appear in this movie in the exact opposite role.
0: Okay, one last question. We are expecting a vote on witnesses next week. If there is a 50 50 tie, and there could be, can Chief Justice Roberts break that tie? Can he vote at all? Can he even sign the subpoena given that? The White House has made clear, the president has made clear, that if John Bolton is subpoenaed to testify, they will go to court to invoke executive privilege, and that this case could end up before the Supreme Court of the United States presided over by Chief Justice Roberts.
3: Yeah, that would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? I, I think what would be interesting, if we got to that point, I think that the first step would be to see if Chief Justice Roberts could broker some compromise, and he's very good at that. I have thorough respect for him. That would
0: take him out of the role that Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, uh, pioneered during the uh, Clinton trial of doing as little as possible. Well, I
3: think that's his goal, but he may not be able to you know, do that at a certain point. Chief Justice Rehnquist didn't face an impasse like that. For instance, one compromise, as you know, could be having a witness like John Bolton come in and give testimony in private with just the senators and the chief justice or even provide and the White House lawyers and the managers, perhaps, and see if there are national security issues, kind of like the in-camera part of things, or have an in-camera review by the chief justice uh, with the the ability of the White House to weigh in on it and make a decision if there's a way to allow certain witnesses just to talk uh, talk about specific topics, because as you know, executive privilege is not absolute, even if it exists. Uh, So there, I could conceive of some ways that he might be able to broker some kind of a deal. I think we're in total, you know, total new territory here because each impeachment trial is something of its own. And uh if it came to that, I I think that he might try to resolve it but ultimately he's not going to overturn what the Senate decides collectively.
0: Well, uh, Ken, I, I, I fear you may be a little too reasonable for these <laughs> uh, polarized times, uh, but I uh, really appreciate you joining us and uh, hearing your insights. Thanks. Thanks for being with well, us. Well,
3: it's a pleasure talking to both of you, and uh, we'll, we'll stay tuned and see where things are in two weeks. OK. OK. Thanks, thanks a lot, lot, Ken. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks to Robert Ray, a member of President Trump's impeachment defense team and Ken Gormley, constitutional law scholar and president of Duquesne University, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.